Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. of crow welcome to escaping society episode 28 i'm gumby i'm Teresa. and we are in durham north carolina it's a pretty chilly day um so we're sitting in the van doing this podcast um and this was my birthday week so happy birthday to me happy birthday that was a couple days ago started doing this uh once a week homeschool program in the nearby town of pittsburgh um which is about as much as I would want to work, just kind of a, a short-term gig, make a little bit of gas money, and I do enjoy working with kids. Um, and I'm trying to do kind of an animus theme, so that's exciting for me, you know, to like practice with these kids of like, what does a tribe look like, and what if we kind of format this tribe to be ambassadors of all these different elements of the earth? Um, so far, I've really enjoyed how much kids respond to that, and. Uh, God, I had drama about like some of the things I post on Facebook that somebody actually complained to my employer about, um, about something we disagreed on. Um, so there was that happening. <laughs> oh so anyway, anything you want to say about current events for you, Teresa? Uh, I guess something that's been in the news recently is the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline oil spill, just like people that were protesting it had predicted. It's now an ecological disaster and we're just going on about our day yeah i was talking to my mom about that like what stops us from going out there you know people sign up for the military people uh just get motivated to do all kinds of things and yet here's this protest on land that we shouldn't even be on uh this protest from the indigenous people that want to keep this pipeline out because it might pollute their land and holy crap how long did that take now there's this huge pollution and you know we're just griping about it it's a uh, <laughs> angry face on facebook yeah frustrating isn't just doesn't cover it but anyway we'll uh talk more about that maybe at some relevant time um let's get on with our podcast um homeless versus houseless so like i said episode 28 and Teresa, why don't you start us off all right well there are many different reasons why someone might be homeless There are obviously um, addictions like drugs, overuse of drugs. There's also mental illness. And there's also ups and downs in the economy. And that might be independent of what an individual is going through with their own personal finances. But it can also be related, as we know. So those are the kind of the three big reasons why a lot of people or a lot of people assume Uh, when you see someone on the street, that they're homeless. But I guess there are, there can be a lot more things in common um, that we have with people, you know, just us living out of our van. And I wouldn't necessarily say I'm addicted to drugs, but I do have addictions. Um, Some, yeah, some that, yeah, I'm segueing. (laughs) Some that we are uh, maybe not too keen to admit at first. So Gumby? 
Yeah, one of the things we're wanting to do with this podcast is kind of contrast these two ideas. And so we're starting off describing kind of the uh, traditional idea about homeless, you know, like when we picture this bum, this dirty bum on the side of the road, that if you're a good person, you help them. Um, just kind of exploring that paradigm, that picture a little bit. As Teresa talks about, um, you know, the three reasons for homelessness, and this is kind of umbrella reasons for me, you know, like some kind of addiction, some kind of mental illness, or some problem with the economy, whether it's actual unemployment, or I actually know a lot of homeless people that are employed. Maybe it's, um, you know, housing is too expensive, things like that. So one thing that I want to point out is we are not so different from these people. I think, you know, like people say that, you know, like, oh, you could be on the streets tomorrow. And I think a lot of us kind of think like, oh, yeah, that's true. But I don't know how many of us really look at that. Like, let's start with the drugs. A lot of these people, you know, they're shooting up heroin and the heroin gets to be such an enjoyable, pleasurable escape for them that they don't care about anything else. They're not working on the different aspects of their life that would um, lead to them like taking care of this life, you know, paying their bills or whatever. So they just wind up on the street and they figure out how to do whatever it takes just to get that next tie. You might think you're nothing like that, but, you know, let's open up what drugs are, mm -hmm. this addiction. When I think about what a drug is, you know, the underlying thing that this drug is, it's escape. It's a numbing. It's something to take us out of this reality and of all the realities that have existed on the earth, I feel like we're living in one of the harder ones. We're living in a reality where we're murdering our own planet, where we know we're on land that has been brought to us through lies and genocide. And these people um, are still out there. They're still wanting their land. We don't even have the peace of mind of like, you know, oh, it's a regretful thing in the past. No, we're still carrying this out. So to escape that, I think is a very natural thing. And we all have our ways of escaping. Don't look down on the heroin addict. Maybe you smoke weed. Maybe you drink. Maybe you do both. Maybe you get on social media. Maybe you're one of those video gamers. Um, maybe you just like to put on your headphones and listen to music and ignore everybody for hours at a time. Mm -hmm. But any one of these things, anything that takes us away from reality that is an escape, I feel like it's got its place. You know, there's definitely a time to take a little break to kind of take the edges off because reality can be really fucking hard, especially the way we're making it. But any one of these things can get out, get out of control. And if they get out of control, if they start eclipsing other things that need care in your life, it could take you to a place you don't want to be. And most of these, these homeless people we're talking about, they don't want to be on the street. It's just something else have, has kind of eclipsed the other things that might stop them from doing the things it takes to not be on the street. So look at your own addictions before you judge the homeless people. Mental illness, um, schizophrenia, you know, all kinds of things that can happen to a homeless person to get them out there. I see so many homeless people talking to themselves, walking around and like shouting, you know, often there's like angry conversations they're having with themselves. You might think like it's sane versus crazy, but we're all crazy. When I look around, I feel like I have never met a sane person because a sane person wouldn't continue living this way. We're living in a way that's so removed from the planet that we know is destroying us, that's, that just doesn't work, that's not serving our children, that costs two, the lives of 200 species every day, and we just continue to do it. You're not going to be able to convince me that there's a sane person within those actions. So it's a spectrum. How organized is your insanity? Can you go through the hoops enough to just do what 
people ask, so you're a cog in a machine, and which is really what's required to have a house. Mm-hmm. You just pay certain bills. There's not a lot of creativity involved. It's just a lot of obedience when you get right down to it. So when I look at homeless people on the streets, it's that their level of insanity, their level of being able to organize this insanity has just degraded to the point that they can't jump through those hoops. They don't have that obedience in them anymore. And also, I should be careful of saying degraded, because I believe in other cultures, some of these people that we're just kind of writing off as insane because they don't fit the mold might be sacred people, might be holy people, might be shamans, might be people that are actually in touch with parts of reality that we are invisible to the rest of us because we are so embedded in the wider picture we create together. So there's that. And then the economy. You know, you might think you're really smart with money. You, you went to college. You got this good-paying job. You're putting money away. You're investing it well. But that economy is a lot more out of your control than a lot of people realize. Um, the stock market could crash if you had have investments. Um, all these numbers that you see that you've got in the bank account, they're theoretical. It's not like gold sitting in your house. And even if it was gold sitting in your house, that's a rock. You know, what people agree on is valuable could change at any time. Because that's all it is, an agreement of what money is. You know, is this paper? Do you agree this is valuable? I agree it's valuable, so give me some food for this little flimsy piece of paper. You could lose your job at any time. We live in an economy of disposable people. That's how the wage slavery works. If you don't fit the mold anymore, maybe through health, you know. God, we hear about healthcare failing people all the time. Maybe your health does something unexpected and you can't do your job anymore. And this company that you've been working your ass off for for years, they don't need you anymore. Maybe they do give you a small pittance, but it's enough not enough for you to pay your bills anymore. There's any number of things that could happen that you could wind up on the streets. And like I said, some of these homeless people do have jobs. So even if that has not happened to you, God, the price of housing, that fluctuates. Um, what's available fluctuates. Mm. Your landlord is a human being, and he could be an asshole. So maybe he's just decided for whatever reason that this doesn't work anymore. So you're out on the streets. Um, and then you take into account your family. You know, you got all these unexpected factors beyond you of people that your your fate, your life is tied into. Um, yeah. So <laughs> really think about that. When people say you could be on the streets, that's not just kind of a fluffy little, oh, it could be you. No, it really could be you tomorrow. Yeah, and you brought up a lot of good points as far as uh, reasons for homelessness. I mean, we've met people. I've met um, two women that I I can attest to that they said that all of their money, like all of their valuables were taken from them, and that's why they're homeless. And as crazy as that sounds, like somebody stole my checkbook and, you know, wrote checks for all the money I had in the bank, and now I'm living in a shelter, but... I only have two more weeks before I'm out on the street. I I mean, I lost my wallet, and that very well could have happened to me. Yeah, I lost my wallet in a dumpster a couple of years ago. <laughs> Luckily, I was already homeless. So, I mean, those those stories, they might not be true, but I've, I've listened to two separate women now, two different occasions, tell me that their identity was stolen or their money was completely wiped out from under them. Um we had referenced in a couple podcasts this book by Ace Backwards, and I have it in my lap right here. It's called Surviving on the Streets, How to Go Down Without Going Out. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And 
He talks a little bit about what he sees as um, some of the reasons for homelessness. And one of them that I guess I found really interesting was the uh, immigration. Now, I am just reading, you know, some information that he has in the book. So for, he said in one of his chapters, for most of the last century, America um, had immigration numbers set at about 200,000 immigrants coming in a year. But in 1965, late Senator Ted Kennedy sponsored a bill which Congress passed that opened the number of immigrants coming in to over a million. And that's excluding illegal immigration, amnesty programs. So the number is closer to 2 million. And he was talking specifically about where he lives at in California or where he lived at um, and how it wasn't that the homes and houses were just disappearing. It's that they were getting populated by these new immigrant families. And it was just at a rate that was impossible to keep up with. Uh, And we see it here on the East Coast, too, just, you know, forests being taken over and all of a sudden there's a subdivision with 300 houses because people need somewhere to live. And I guess you got something to say? Well, yeah, you're probably going to go into how, like, even Ace Backwards goes on to say that this is not against immigrants. It's not an anti-immigrant statement. It's a practical reality. I mean, it just is simple math. You know, if there's a certain number of jobs, houses, resources, and you let other people in... Um, there's going to be a certain, like, something needs to happen, you know, to to balance that all out. And I don't look at it like an anti-immigrant statement. I look at it like the way we all live. You know, this this just, it doesn't work. It's not sustainable from one end to the other. So, you know, for me, the way I'm trying to live, I'd just say, you know, let all the immigrants in. I don't care. Um, (laughs) But I get where he's coming from. I mean, you know, anyway, you're probably going to get into that, so. Well, I mean... I, I think you might have summed it up for me because, like I said, I'm just reading this information as like a reason why there might be more homeless. And he goes on to say that, you know, the influx of immigrants, the sheer number coming in um, can often lead to squeezing out uh, people that are old, people that are young, the weak, the crazy and admittedly the lazy. So taking those houses over, you know, if people who are coming here and they're legal coming here or illegal and they have jobs and that's what they want to do. And that doesn't necessarily mean that people that are becoming homeless, that, that they're completely victimized. Um, yeah. And I would say, like, keep in mind, this is coming from a guy living on the streets. You know, you might say, like, how many white people are trying to be fruit pickers? And that's a good point. But when you look at the people living on the streets, some of those people were fruit pickers or wanted to be. You know, th- this is where a lot of the competition is. So what you got is politicians, you know, whether they're Republican or Democrats, they're they're wealthier. They're not living on the streets and they're making these decisions. And a lot of the effect of these decisions falls on the bottom, the people that are living the hardest lives with the least money. And um, those are the people that are competing for these resources. Yeah. And Ace Backwards also talks about the secret homeless and how because homelessness is kind of looked upon um, as illegal, uh, you don't really hear a lot of people's backstories unless you get into that inner circle. And he gave some examples of kind of the people that were sitting around the campfire one night talking to him. And they include uh, someone who used to write for The New York Times someone who graduated Yale and did postgraduate studies 
and uh, someone who spent all day in the computer library designing websites. So there was a documentary we just watched called, oh my gosh, On the Streets. And it was put out by the LA Times, so it was specifically uh, looking at homelessness in Los Angeles. But in that documentary, they also met people who were artists, people who decided that, you know, living with a couple of friends in this bigger van, that, you know, it's not much different from being in college sharing a room, so it's not that bad. And they don't necessarily want to um, have a house with all those bills where they have to maybe take two or three jobs to pay for it. So thinking about what what other, like, what am I trying to say? We, we might often think that they're just crazy people or drug addicts or bag ladies walking around on the street, but that's not always so. There might even be people who are working for you that are living out of their car or their van in the parking lot somewhere. Oh, I am so sorry. <laughs> I just took Gumby's thing. I'm sorry, Gumby. Do you want to take one of mine? No. All right. Well, okay. Sorry about that. Um, and like Gumby was talking about before, there's all these people that are typically, they're trying to do a good thing. They're trying to help people that are on the streets to get a job. And that what we're saying doesn't mean that there aren't people out there who need this help, who want to move back into a home. But it often turns out that there is a percentage of people who they don't want to go to work. They don't want to go into a job skills program. They just want to do kind of what we're doing and live as simply as possible so we don't have to work so much. Gumby. Yeah, we saw a really interesting documentary that Teresa found called Streetwise, and it was made in the early 80s, right? I think so. And it focused on these kids in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, And to me, that was a really good depiction of the kind of homelessness we're talking about. And again, we're about to make a contrast of what we call houselessness. So this homelessness, you know, it's like people really, like especially these kids that are being followed, living these rough lives. Most of them are runaways. A lot of the girls are getting into prostitution. The guys are like selling drugs. Their parents are in prison. Um, And like it was a pretty sad documentary. One of the kids ended up hanging himself. Um, Another... Um, girl that was, um, did she identify as a boy? She just dressed kind of, she was very masculine. Yeah. She said she was kind of her own thing. So she resisted labels herself. Yeah. Um, but she was a real firecracker and she would like go out there and try to defend other homeless kids. But apparently she got stabbed to death, um, either during or right after this documentary. But I thought it was a really good window into, um, what that looks like, you know, the squatting, the sneaking around to get showers, the um, the dealing with the system of like crime and the processing, especially for a kid where it's not so, I think it's a little less cut and dry, you know, going to prison and everything. They try to like, you know, put you in more counseling and stuff like that, which for a kid living like that is a type of prison. Um, what do you think about that documentary? I thought it was really eye-opening because my childhood looked absolutely nothing like that. But then you said, well, didn't it have elements though of a lot of your childhood? I mean, just in broad strokes, the, the angst or like the feelings of maybe suicidal thoughts of like, I can't believe it's, this is happening this way. You know, so-and-so should be, you know, my boyfriend or going with me or, you know, something's not going your way. And, and as a teenager, it's like the biggest problem in the world. 
so yeah, it was it was a very interesting uh, take on the kids on the street. Yeah, so that documentary is Streetwise, and Teresa is going to read a little bit of the prologue from Surviving on the Streets by Ace Backwards, and this is also a pretty uh, neat window, but also sort of a positive look at being on the streets. Are you ready? I guess so. (laughs) So Ace Backwards is the guy that wrote that book, Surviving on the Streets, and he found this place in the woods that was outside of town, like a 30-minute walk. And he writes, um, he woke up one morning and he was feeding the birds and just taking it all in, like how crazy it was that he was living in the woods. And he says, I'm sure I was quite a sight. The side of my jacket was caked with mud. My backpack was bursting open at the seams. And one of the soles of my boots was coming off, giving me a kaplonk, kaplonk cadence as I walked down the road, which I can... I can relate to because my shoes often fall apart. Um, At the end of the long road, a construction crew was busy jackhammering away on the concrete at a deafening volume. One of the workers was standing in the middle of the road, wearing an orange city worker vest and holding up a small stop sign to divert the traffic. As he looked at me approaching him, I could tell exactly what he was thinking. Man, this job might suck, but at least I'm not sleeping in the dirt like that poor slob. And I passed him. And as I passed him, I thought, man, sleeping in the dirt might suck, but at least I'm not standing in the middle of the street, holding up a stop sign and listening to jackhammers all day long like that poor slob. And it was great because we both made each other feel better about facing the day. (laughs) And I just really liked that because I thought it was a, a good way to look at, you know, it might not always be comfortable living out of a van or definitely, you know, sleeping on the streets, but... Um, with Ace Backwards, you know, he found a quiet place in the woods that he felt safe. He even had his community of like raccoons and birds that he recognized and started to really notice different things about their patterns and was able to walk into town and just, wow, take it all in. And he might have looked like a sight, but people were uh, having to work and he wasn't. Yeah, so I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the challenges of being on the street, whether you're homeless or houseless. Um, And I'm not going to go into these at detail because a lot of these we've already talked about in other podcasts, but one of them is privacy. So, um, and, you know, I think about going to the bathroom. Anytime you go to the bathroom, it's usually a public bathroom unless you're in a park and then it can feel a little more private. But even then, you know, like the gate's going to close. It's not really something that you feel a sense of ownership over. So often at the very least, you're like having to walk through a store, a grocery store, you know, in a very public place to go use the bathroom. And then just privacy in the wider sense, you know, trying to sleep. Um, You're always in the public eye or at risk of being in the public eye. Even when you're in the woods, you know, there could be a park ranger. There could be a hiker, somebody showing up. Um, (laughs) We've never had that happen. Yeah. So that really weighs (laughs) on you. That actually, I think, is the most taxing thing for me. I can wrap my mind around the discomfort. I can roll with that, you know, and it's, it's, I'm not trying to say it's always uncomfortable, but, you know, the really cold nights and everything, you adapt to that. You start figuring out what you need to do. But the privacy, that's not, that's something I've never really been able to fully adapt to. So that's a huge challenge. Um, kind of in that vein of some of the things I just said, being run off, you know, like having a sense of shelter, a sense of home, whatever that means to you. Um, that's why I like the term houseless better, because uh, homeless, um, 
a lot of things can be your home, depending on how you look at it. Mm -hmm. But whatever you're calling your home, the feeling that you could be run off from it, which actually is the reality of every human being on the planet. Um, Anybody's house could burn down. Uh, There could be a rebellion. There could be any number of things that take you away from this thing you think you're entitled to. So in a way, I almost appreciate that challenge in a way, because I feel like it brings me a little closer to the reality of the situation. But it is a challenge, always feeling like you could be run off. And in that vein, the safety, you know, you don't have the illusion of safety on the streets. You know, somebody could come walking up and you don't know who that person is. Um, So that's something that definitely weighs on you and can challenge you. Health. It can be really hard on your body out there. I have backaches all the time, and I've been doing like homeless, outdoor stuff for most of my life, so I don't know how much of this I'd be feeling if I lived a different kind of life or is really tied into some of these things that I'm doing. Um, but I've heard other people you know, say they, they age prematurely fast. It's just rough on their body. They've got diabetes. They've got you know, cancer. They've got all kinds of things, and you know, going with the homelessness often is lack of health care. So there's a lot fewer options of things you can do about it. Um, So just think, like, what we're doing to the planet, they're getting inundated with all the same things everybody else is, all the chemicals, all this other stuff, but they can't even go to the doctor and get patched up um, from this stuff. And another challenge is sense of community. And I'm kind of like, I don't know, Sometimes being homeless can actually give you more of a feeling of tribe, because if you get in with the right group of people, you're really dependent on each other. And I feel like our culture really tends to separate us. So, um, you know, but I've also heard a lot of homeless people saying, like, they feel alone out there. Um, They don't have, like, a neighbor. They don't have coworkers to go see that you can just kind of shoot the shit with. Um, So having that sense of community is something that's challenging. And a lot of the better homeless shelters that I see, that seems to be something they're very conscious of. They try to provide more of that. You know, they like learn people's names. They say hi. They're super friendly. They give you a little place to kind of hang out, maybe get to meet other homeless people or other people that are volunteering. But that is a challenge, just feeling like you belong, which kind of ties in with being run off and everything and the privacy. You just don't feel like you belong anywhere. And we're going to talk more about that, but I think that's part of that is intentional. Yeah, and going back to that documentary with the kids, um, they certainly had a community going, you know, whether it was, <laughs> I mean, like pimps and prostitutes or just like there was the one kid who he found somebody that was a little bit older than him. They were living in an abandoned uh, hotel that they just kind of shimmied up and out of this one window that was unlocked. And and that one other person like had your back. And the group of these kids would kind of meet up and they might have arguments or disagreements here and there, but they were there for each other, especially when the cops came around. They were pretty um, uh, protective of each other. Yeah, and I've experienced that myself. When I was younger, I wasn't homeless with other uh, kids per se, but we were definitely kind of like really poor. You know, we might be living in like somebody else's like trailer or whatever and kind of just swapping around in houses and stuff and we were all criminals so (laughs) the cops are always looking for somebody or the other and there was definitely a nice feeling of camaraderie um i think about how indigenous tribes would often say like they valued their enemies they didn't want to wipe them out and i think back at those that time in my childhood like 
I wouldn't say we didn't want to wipe the cops out. We would have been delighted if all the cops had disappeared. <laughs> but it brought us together to have a common enemy. It really was, uh, in a way, a beautiful thing. And I hear that actually from soldiers, too. You know, they say that they form bonds in the military under all the stress that they don't have back home. And a lot of people talk about missing that after they, they get out of the military. Yeah, and something else that we touched on was um, activists and just these programs that are set up. And while some of that can be helpful, it just seems like whatever we've got, whatever systems and programs are in place are just, they're not really serving the population. Gumby, did you want to talk more about that? Um, well, you know, you think about what I would call the accepted solution. So... Like I said, and like Teresa said, we've watched some documentaries about homelessness. And more often than not, there's sort of this message of we need to help the homeless. Let's help these people get back on their feet. If you look at um, like house homeless shelters, you know, if they're a good one, they're going to help you like try to find a job, maybe try to find a place to live, start paying bills. This is the accepted solution. So in other words, the bottom line of the solution is let's help these people that have had something bad happen to them, that have kind of fallen out of society, that are struggling. Let's help them come back into the fold and be more like us. This solution cannot work because we already know that the way we live, this lifestyle with the bills, the houses, the job, it's not serving us, which is why so many people are winding up homeless. And it's taxing the planet so much that it's not sustaining us already. So the insanity is to try to induct more people into this way of life. And I understand in the small picture, you know, like you see this person because most of the homeless people, and this is something we're about to talk about with the contrast, homeless versus houseless, they didn't choose it. And that's a huge thing. They wanted to have a job. They wanted to have the consumer goods. They wanted to have the house and the bills and the electricity and everything else. Mm -hmm. um, so they're trying to get back to that. They feel like they failed. And so people trying to help them are also, you know, wanting to help them get back. So both of them want the homeless person to be in this place that looks sort of like, I guess the ideal would be middle class. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, we're, I've just... More and more, I've questioned that paradigm until now I am dead set against it. It's insane. It just does not work. It doesn't bear the weight of daylight. Um, we need to reverse that. Um, a little bit about the activists Teresa's talking about, you know, the, the Republicans, they tend to just ignore the problem. Republicans, for the most part, seem to have an attitude of you should work your way up. And if you stop being such a lazy bastard, you can go, it might be hard, but get a job and then, you know, start saving money. And you can, if through enough, you know, sweat and toil, um, you can get back to living like the rest of us. So many factors are ignored. So many different quirks and personalities. So many of the ways people are brought up that make that more difficult. Um, there's not a lot of empathy in that paradigm. Although, you might think, you know, when you start thinking about that, that the homeless people are all going to be really great um, followers of the Democratic Party. I've met at least as many homeless people that are sort of more right-wing in their thinking than left-wing. They feel like failures because they agree they should have done something different. 
It just didn't work out for them, so they're equally hard on themselves, as the Republicans might be. I should have worked harder. I shouldn't have like gotten sidetracked with this drug. I shouldn't have made this mistake. But I don't know. To me, that's a very small picture, just like often the Republican picture of the environment is a very small picture. Exploit this resource. It makes jobs. It's good for the people. But what about the repercussions of exploiting <laughs> that resource? Mm. But then you get the Democrats, the liberal Democrats. And there's a lot of... Um, what would I say, critique against that approach as well. Um, Democrats have been called, inf I'm not really sure if I can say this word, infantilizing. They treat people like infants. So part of the problem of why there's homeless, why there's this huge class discrepancy is because we've got people that aren't being served that are out there that are struggling. And then we got people that have too much. So we're both, both sides are working to keep that up. And I don't see a lot of Democrats giving up all their stuff to be houseless, to be homeless. They're trying to have all the goods that they want. And what they're really doing is addressing their guilt. And when you approach things this way, it tends to be very condescending. You tend to create a situation where a homeless person has a hard time finding any pride in what they do, any pride in themselves. They're just getting handouts. You're treating them like a a pampered dog, you know, like, oh, we like you. We love you here. Take this, take this. You don't really get a chance to like feel like a, I don't know, a warrior, a valuable part of society. And also there's the enabling aspect, you know, the way we believe in our culture widely, like you should help the homeless is by food kitchens, food pantries, food banks, um, homeless shelters, but what you see when you have a town that offers more and more services for the homeless is, what do you think happens? There's more and more homeless people. <laughs> so they will always exceed the resources given. So you're going to have people that can't be in the homeless shelters. They're out there on the streets because they were hoping to get there and find that homeless shelter. It does not address the problem whatsoever. It almost enables it because there are some homeless people that are making the choice just to use all the resources to get that drug. And I don't really blame them. You know, like if life is so freaking hard, if you've had an experience of life that is just disgusting, but then you stick that needle in your arm and everything feels great. All your problems go away for a couple hours. Why the hell wouldn't you work for the needle? Mm. That to me, that's not such an illogical decision, even though in the bigger picture, it's sad because I know that there's deeper, better things in life than that ultimate escape. But I can't judge the person that makes that decision. And the Democratic approach does not do much to address that. They just enable it and make more homeless people. So I think both parties have failed. Like this, this approach does not fix the homeless problem. One thing I wanted to add real quick was we've been to food pantries and soup kitchens. And I'm not saying that they're run you know, more by Republicans or conservatives or Democrats. But what I will say is with conservative use of the government, it seems like there are people in organizations like churches that will step up. And so it's more of a community-based approach instead of federal money being, you know, put into a program that who knows what they're actually doing. It might just be money that's, you know, paying for an office building for people to have salaries that work there. It's not even filtering to the homeless people whatsoever. So I guess, yeah, I just wanted to put that in there as far as 
like Republicans and Democrats. It's not necessarily that I think one's better than the other, but I do notice that like when there, when there is a need, the community steps up versus if you just say, oh, the government's taking care of that. People are like, oh, well, good then. You know, I already paid my taxes, so I guess it's taken care of. Yeah, that's definitely a democratic approach is, uh, you know, just to kind of like put your faith in a system, in a program. And that makes you feel less guilty. So now you can have your nice little house, you know, with too much stuff and, you know, unoccupied land and all the rest of it. But you're, you're a good person. You're one of the people that, like, supports welfare. Mm-hmm. So I think it's more about the democratic guilt and the guilt of just, you know, our culture at large living like this than it is really about any actual helping of the homeless. Um, God, I had something else to say, but as usual, I've had my customary brain fart at least once in every episode. <laughs> but one thing I wanted to read, so that, that brings us to homeless versus, oh, I know what it was. So one of the things that occurs to me about this solution is since we're sucking the planet dry and all of us are not about, about to not have much of a future, one thing that I feel like would be a step in the right direction is if instead of trying to get the homeless to live more like us, as if we've got something figured out, mm. we need to learn how to live more like the homeless. And we need to figure out the good things versus the bad things in the homeless. Because like I said, a lot of those people, they don't want to be out there. So it's almost by accident, by default, that they're living with a lot less resources and a lot less impact on the planet. But there's something to be explored there. So I want to get this conversation started about homeless versus houseless. And now let's start exploring. All this was about kind of the homeless issue. Let's start exploring houselessness. Um, there's one paragraph I found in the book Citizen Hobo by Todd DePastino um, that I wanted to read, and it brings this up a little bit. You want me to hold it? I got it. And the paragraph says, If new economic and social conditions created the homelessness crisis of the 1980s, responses to that crisis in many ways replicated and reinforced the gender and racial ideologies that gave rise to the post-war settlement. Indeed, the very choice of the term homelessness, as opposed to the more accurate houselessness, revealed the ideological assumptions at work in the national debate over the new poverty. Deeply entrenched fears, desires, and prejudices about normative housing arrangements, family life, and the racial and gender distinctions between the deserving and undeserving poor shaped the public and private meanings of the crisis from its inception. A problem with the concept of homelessness, remark Sophie Watson and Helen Osterberry in their feminist analysis of housing, is the notion of home. A house, they explain, is generally taken to be synonymous with a dwelling or physical structure, whereas home is not. A home implies particular social relations or activities within a physical structure, whereas a house does not. The very concept of homelessness, then, entails a concern not just with housing, but with the particular social relations of nuclear family life and their accompanying ideals of manhood and womanhood. So there's a lot in that paragraph, but part of what they're describing is just the way we look at homelessness has been used to discriminate against gender, has been used to discriminate against race. Um, We're not just talking about somebody having a dwelling and a right to be there. We're talking about a whole way of life, a participation in this culture, which more and more is revealing itself to be not a good thing to participate in. Not good for your kids, not good for the planet, not good for you, really not good for anything. Um, And Teresa, you look like you had something to say to that. I don't want to mess up your next 
topic on the list there, but I did want to mention, I just started reading Citizen Hobo, um, basically just started the introduction in chapter one, but something that they mentioned about the idea of getting people off of the street and into a home was for the betterment of the economy as a whole. It wasn't even taking into consideration that a person might not want to live in a house or a home and have a nuclear family and, you know, 2.8 children and a dog and a picket fence. They just needed everybody to move into a home so that they could be paying bills and being good consumers. And I believe that was a Democrat program. <clears throat> so, <laughs> Gumby. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, flipping that paradigm around, um, looking at the houselessness, like how do we turn what is good in the homeless lifestyle into an empowering thing? Not something that happens when shit hits the fan, your life falls apart, you wind up on the street and, oh my God, you need help, you're desperate, it's a nightmare, help me get back to lower class or middle class life. How do we flip that paradigm? One of the first places... Um, that I would now look after, you know, the, the things I've read and what I've studied is the hobo army. Um, I've talked a little bit about this in, our, in former pod, podcasts, but after the Civil War, a lot of the veterans, as usual, were not served by the government. They, they, a lot of promises were made to them. And keep in mind, the Civil War, a lot of these soldiers were Confederate soldiers. So, you know, there's a little bit of, uh, or maybe more than a little bit of animosity towards them. They were basically terrorists. They fought the U.S. government. And anybody that does not completely accept our empirical way of life mm. is a terrorist or something really despicable. So these Confederate soldiers were not getting served, but ironically, neither were the Union soldiers either. They wound up desperately uh, fighting in Indian wars on the prairies soon after that, just moved right into the next battle. Um, there was no post-traumatic stress syndrome or psychiatrist back then. You just went. You were just fucked up. Yeah, and right around then, the Industrial Revolution is happening. So at the same time, there's this new way of life, which was kind of an underpinning of the Civil War as well, where factories are growing. This whole way of life that instead of having big plantations and being outside and things like that, you're going into factories, you're, you're working on machines, you're serving machines, and a lifestyle that goes with that, because with the machines comes an increase in technology. It's picking up. And with this technology, more and more you're getting things, that your appliances and stuff like that you want in your home. There was a lot of people who, it turned out, rejected that. And they were actually called the Hobo Army. This was a term that was common back in the late 1800s, 1870 and beyond, right up until the early 1900s. It was called the Hobo Army because it wasn't just hobos. It wasn't just homeless people that were riding on these new trains that suddenly are crossing the country and looking for work. They were actually somewhat organized. They had military training. They knew how to survive um, and work with other soldiers. They knew how to survive in the woods. They'd already, because of the Civil War, had to learn foraging, had to offset their meals on the fly. And they didn't know any other way to live anymore. Mm -hmm. And this way that was being offered to them more and more did not look appealing to them. To be in a house, to have a nine-to-five job, to have a schedule that you had to, like, be at certain places at certain times. I mean, imagine like somebody that's known just living outside all this time, what that's like to them, and then add post-traumatic stress syndrome, and you're feeling like, God, I've got my own social anxiety. I know what a schedule feels like to me. I can only imagine what that felt like to them. Like, I just can't, it, it's like being stuck in a small cage. 
they'd rather ride the rails and take their risk out there. And even if it meant sometimes you didn't know where the work was or the food was, they had more faith in the plants they've already learned to eat than this promise by the rich that if you come and work for me, we'll give you all these things, all these appliances, all these new devices that they didn't want anyway. So I find them to be a role model of a really empowering paradigm of people that chose homelessness. And because they chose it, we see a much different picture than what we see on the street corners today of what we consider the homeless people. Yeah, and something else that they were also, not all, but a lot of the hobo army were against settling down. Because if you think about being around men in the army and they've got your back and you guys are, you know, you're living in a certain way. Maybe you're crude, maybe you're dirty and nasty. And then you're expected to put up your uniform and go settle down and have a wife and kids. And even though PTSD wasn't the name for it, you still certainly had it. And then you were expected to just be, you know, living in a normal life in a house and, like Gumby says, going to work and buying things. And ironically, at this time when we're, you know, kind of putting the finishing touches on the genocide to wipe out the last wild Indians so we can have their land, a lot of these hobos are romanticizing the Indians. They're really thinking, wow, that way of life looks better than the white way of life. And so the hobos, in a lot of ways, start imitating aspects of that way of life. I already mentioned the foraging, the wild plants, just the idea that food's out there, that you don't have to pay for it. Food is not under lock and key, as Daniel Quinn would say. Um, But also the communities, they had little tribes, they'd call them jungles, you know, and they were a lot more permeable than indigenous tribes. You know, if you're Apache, you're Apache. With the hobos, it would tend to be like people would come and go a lot more. But the jungle was a place to form community, and even their food was communal. They'd have mulligan stews, so you might have a little bit of food that's nothing very remarkable. Your buddy has a little bit of food, but if all the hobos get together and put it in a soup, you can make a pretty damn good soup. So just all kinds of little things like that you start reading, where these people are really forming a a community, you know, an empowered, homeless, or houseless, as I'm going to start saying, community. And and also a place of acceptance. I mean, you say community, but also where the way that they're living is accepted among them. Yeah. Um, oh, the next part is yours. Sure. Well, Gumby introduced me to this quote. Uh, it's from Dharma Bums. Uh, Jack Kerouac, Kerouac, Kerouac. Kerouac wrote it in uh, 1958. And a quote uh, from Dharma Bums says, I see a vision of a great rucksack revolution. Thousands or even millions of young Americans wandering around with rucksacks, giving visions of eternal freedom to everybody and to all living creatures. And that was a character by the name of Jaffe Ryder. Yeah, and Jaffe Ryder was based on Gary Snyder. Um, but <laughs> this whole book was like about this guy that was hitting the road. He was basically a hobo. He was riding the rails and everything, and he met this Jaffe Ryder who was um, a real like fringe character um, that was also heavily into Zen Buddhism um, and all his experiences involved in that. But that quote, that whole call for a rucksack revolution, it kind of simmered in the minds of these beatniks. And about 10 years later, you know, that was 58, the late 60s, finally it explodes. And like you got the hippies, you got flower children, you got masses of people 
And again, the power of choice mm-hmm. that are choosing to give up their homes. So you've got it starting to look in all different kinds of ways. And we're not talking about desperate people with their hands out. We're talking about communes, intentional communities. We're talking about hitchhikers. We're talking about uh, Charles Manson and the family, you know. <laughs> all <laughs> I mean, good things. All good things. And well, People exploring and living their life and saying to hell with what they want me to do, what society expects me to do, I'm going to live my life. Yeah, and uh, a rejection of so many of the values we're taught in society that we are taught work for us, but are actually working for the people making profit from us. For instance, a closeness to nature, you know, people are starting to be willing to get really dirty. Like, maybe I don't need an expensive haircut. I'll just let my damn hair grow. I'll just be fuzzy and and hairy and maybe, like, rough-looking. And that became a style where, like, when you're around other people with those values, you didn't look bad. You were actually kind of admirable, like, oh, man, yeah, that that dude's wild. Like, I like him. Or, <laughs> the, you biggest, know, the biggest beard has the right of way. Yeah, that hippie chick <laughs> with the fuzzy armpits. Like, she is, like, such a free spirit. She's far out. Yeah, and like body odor, you know, I would imagine that played a part in it. And I've been in some like, I guess you might call them hippie communities, like even nowadays. And, you know, a different view on body odor is part of that. You get used to it. First, when I walked into a room with these people, it's like, whoa. (laughs) But then after a couple of weeks, I didn't even smell it anymore. And when I got on a bus to go home, like all the deodorants and everything, it was like, whoa, God, what is that person masking? (laughs) Jesus Christ, that doesn't smell like human at all. So, yeah, there was just a huge doorway of freedom um, that I think started simmering with that that quote, that rucksack revolution. Just put on your backpack, hit the road, get out there and live your damn life in capital letters. Don't be trapped in that house. Don't be trapped in all this crap that you don't need that they're trying to sell you. I had a kid one time, I think it was a couple years ago, and he asked me what I thought the most important part of wilderness survival was. And I looked at him and I said, Train yourself not to need the things they're trying to sell you. Hmm. It's that same thing. If you don't need that crap that you didn't need in the first place, but they're telling you you need, holy crap. That is one of the biggest like doorways to, to getting out of that big, ugly box we call a home. And the rucksack revolution, that just reminds me of Alexander Supertramp in a lot of ways. Christopher McCandless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I bet this is a quote he's familiar with. <laughs> Another quote I like by Jack Kerouac, and I'm not sure what book it came from, came, came from, our houses are full of things that gather dust. And I just love the implications of that, that statement. You know, houses are full of things, he's basically saying, that you don't need, that sit there, that you just are scared to part with. They're sitting there, they're getting dust, they're not actively involved in your life. Um when you start looking at what it takes to actually live your life, you know, when it's not about being distracted, when it's not about a podcast, when it's not about an MP3 player, and I'm talking about the stuff that (laughs) Teresa and I do, because we're not free of this, when it's about life itself, like what if the world was exciting enough? What if you knew how to look at the world in the correct way? Um, You don't need that stuff. There's nothing in there to gather dust. So I've always liked that short little sentence because it is such a profound sentence that means so much. Yeah, yesterday we knew that we knew that today was going to be kind of cold. And so yesterday I was just thinking, wouldn't it be nice if we could just walk in the woods? And Gumby had mentioned that there was this creek down there. And so we were walking, following the creek to the lake and just 
exploring and having a really good time, at least I was, just looking at the different colors of leaves and the different depths of the pools as we got closer to the lake and the rock formations. And if I was in my house, I wouldn't think really of any of that. I might go for a hike, but you know when you go for a hike, it's something. It, there's something different about it. I guess, Gumby, you say it's like exercising. You don't really tend to look at the environment. You just pass through it. But yesterday was a really good example of what it's like to be houseless and just the whole world is your home. I don't have to be in this box that's, I was, I was just going to say, that's like a, um, a barrier against the world. Yeah, yesterday was a good example of that because yesterday felt really timeless. We had no schedule. We, I mean, we don't have a lot of bills to pay, so we didn't have to be on a schedule to like go and run to make the next buck. Um, we didn't have to like distract ourselves with like programs. We didn't have like, oh, there's yoga class here and the exercise class here. And, <laughs> you know, it was just timeless. And it, not every day of ours looks like that because we, even living in a van, can get involved in uh, just overstuffing our day with minutiae. But my mom came out and sat in the yard and talked to us for a while in the sun. We had a little hobo stove going um, to cook whatever we wanted to, some chili, and just to kind of stay warm on the cool morning. And that just, the conversation went as long as it needed to, no hurry. And then when it was time, like Teresa said, we just went down to take a dip in the river and just decided to walk. And then Teresa took a nap in the van after that. <laughs> well, I like, you know, got our list ready for this podcast. And the whole day just felt like just very calm and unrushed and that is one of the beauties of of turning away from the home because the home is a cruel taskmaster taskmaster (laughs) yes say that five times fast taskmaster taskmaster anyway and that's a really good example and point two of the real cost of living in a home a house and gumby you've written a lot of things down here but i guess i'll get it started and then just please jump in So what does it really mean to live in a house? Um, I mentioned that when you're in a house, there's like this barrier. I mean, not like, there is a barrier between you and the outside. So what does it mean when you're enacting that philosophy? What does it mean to even own a house, to decide that this piece of land is your property and you own it? Gumby? Well... I would say that everything we do is an enacting a philosophy. I talked about this in our earthing podcast um, about going barefoot. Oh, yeah. But, you know, having a house, there's a lot to that. It's not just this neutral, like, I have a house and that means nothing. By living this way, you are breathing life into a certain philosophy, a certain way of viewing the world. One of those aspects of that philosophy is isolation. This is not something that made sense to many, many, many peoples all over the world to live in a house by yourself with maybe your family. And this is the paradigm that is pushed on us as a mark of success. If you live with other people in your house, it's probably because you're poor, (laughs) because something bad has happened. You live with your mom. And if people get back on their feet, then you can have your house all to yourself. (laughs) There's a lot to that. Like, we have a whole culture that really encourages isolation. You know, like, get on Facebook. If you want to, like, talk to more friends, like, this is community. But, you know, here's your home. Here's your privacy. And you need that. You really need to be by yourself because bad things can happen 
And by bad, I mean bad for the government when we start getting together and working together. When you got tribes, you know, there were a lot of people that would like, they just kind of come and go from each other's teepee. It's, it's not that you didn't have a place to be by yourself when you wanted it. It's that because of the way you lived, you didn't want it as much. You enjoyed the company of the people around you. You weren't in enemy territory. You weren't surrounded by people who were always against your views, who were always uh, incomprehensible to you, who did not feel like your close family. Everybody felt like your close family. So if your neighbor came over and they were sleeping right beside you for some reason, it felt okay. That's like your brother. Um, oh, can I add something? Um, I briefly rented a house, so I was living by myself. I don't really know why. I guess it was that mark of achievement. You know, I had gotten a job that I could afford this two-bedroom house, and the other bedroom was just full of crap, collecting dust, like Kerouac said. And it it created a problem for me because I worked until I was exhausted and came home and didn't feel like making food, so then I'd have to go back out and be a consumer and purchase something. Whereas if I lived with, I don't know, maybe my parents, my mom would have already made something and I could have just enjoyed it. Or I think about people who have children and how if they lived in more of a community, more of a tribe, they wouldn't have to worry about paying for daycare or paying for food. It wouldn't be a a question. There would be people there to support them. And so this shame that has been beaten into us by having to have our own this and our independent that, it's really about consumerism. And keeping us weak. Like that's one of the strategies they used when they were trying to convince um, indigenous tribes, Indians, to come on the reservation. And once they get them on the reservation, the next problem is how do we get them to be consumers? They don't want to work. They don't want to do the stuff we want them to do because they don't need to. (laughs) You know, like that just is not what they've ever needed to do. So we've got to separate them. We've got to make them somewhat competitive with each other because if they're all taking care of each other, I mean, how does that benefit the government? So breaking the tribe, breaking the sacred hoop, that's part of what a house represents, that philosophy. A house, there's no sacred hoop in that house. And I'm not saying any house, you know, depending on how people live in it. I'm just saying that the average house, I think that's a part of the philosophy being enacted. And you also see that with groups of people that are resisting the government. I think about the anarchist in uh, Paris around the, the time of the Bonot gang in the early 1900s. Communal living was something that they understood. And also Emma Goldman here in America Communal living is something you you see come up again in anarchist groups. And when you're fighting the government, it's like, no, they want us separated. Let's get together. Hmm. Let's start forming something that looks like the beginning of a tribe again. Another part of that philosophy that your house represents is the stagnant agrarian lifestyle. Hmm. Hunter-gatherers don't—it wouldn't make any sense to have a great, big, permanent house like that. They need to be able to pick up and leave as nature dictates. When nature changes, you change with it. You're a part of nature. There's an understanding, a reciprocity there. It's something a house represents a rejection of nature. Um, It's cold outside, turn on the heat. It's hot outside, turn on the AC. (laughs) You don't want to walk to the river? No problem. Here's the plumbing. It's coming right to you. Um, 
just everything about a house is a rejection of a natural way of living, a rejection of faith that nature is a good thing and can take care of you. And that agrarian lifestyle ties back again to Daniel Quinn. He talks a lot about these issues in his own way, the totalitarian agriculture that not just Daniel Quinn, but many people believe is the fuel of our culture. It's the thing that started us on the path of living this way. It's this failed experiment we called our culture. And this house is directly tied to an agrarian lifestyle, a, re- a lifestyle reliant on agriculture. Another thing that that house represents is just where it is. Mm. You're in what we call the United States of America right now. Well, I understand our podcast is getting to other places too, but actually this is true of anybody listening to this podcast on the, the planet. It's part of the colonial plan. That plan was to clear the indigenous people out of there, to get them out of the way so the people of our culture could be there. When you live in this house, when you occupy this land, you're justifying that genocide because that's why they did it. They got those people out of the way so you could be there. And no matter what you think you believe, if you're occupying that land, you've justified it. You've fulfilled that vision. That's the manifest destiny. And you are manifesting that destiny. You continue to occupy that land with your house, and it is stolen land. It was gotten by genocide, by broken treaties, by lies. And like I said in this podcast earlier, there are still people out there fighting for these treaties to be honored. One of the reasons they can't be honored is because you think you're entitled to this freaking house. Oh, yeah. There is a lot of ugliness in the philosophy of you having a house. And I'm not just talking about, you know... The first thing that happens when you start bringing up stuff like this to people is people start looking for a way that they're not part of that group. They want to like, well, I rent. (laughs) It's the same damn thing. This house is just a different way to be in the house. You're still occupying this land. Um, And these are all I bring up these, not just just make you feel guilty, though. It should make you feel kind of guilty, but to give you reasons of why you might start looking for an alternative, what this house actually represents, the real cost. Um. Also, a helpless reliance on technology, like we talked about the hobos. You know, ever since that Industrial Revolution kicked off, there's been another technological revolution with the automobile in the the early 1900s, the turn of the century, and suddenly we become car culture. You know, distances and air quality drastically change. But where are you going? Why aren't you just where you work? Because you have a house. So you can't just, like, be a migratory worker, you know, not if you're successful. You have a house. You're building it up. You're making it bigger and better and filling it with better stuff with all these new gadgets that are coming. And why do you suddenly need new gadgets that have never existed on the planet before? Because they're marketed to you. Mm. Because people are getting really clever at convincing you your life's going to be so much better with this new product. And we know at this point that that's a blatant lie. Do you really think that 150 years ago people were more miserable than they are now? How could they be? They would have all committed suicide. (laughs) Like, we're a miserable freaking group of people. Um, And this reliance on technology is another way that we stay helpless. For every bit of technology that comes out, it's replacing something that we knew how to do before. So now you've got this nice gadget. Maybe if you're really clever and take the time, you learn how to fix the gadget so you don't have to call the repairman all the time. But you still feel like you need to fix the gadget. You need the gadget. There are very few things that technology is offering us that you can make from scratch, right from the land. You're going to need somebody's factory. You're going to need some store. You're going to need Home Depot. You're going to need something. And all of this makes us more 
and more helpless. We're infants suckling at the teat of our culture. And we may complain, we may grumble, but you ever get on one of these damn anarchist Facebook pages or, you know, any of these pages where people think they're, like, resisting the government? I see people complaining all over the freaking place. And yet I'm wondering, how come I never see on the news one single freaking factory burning down? (laughs) Because we're in this group. We're helpless. We're scared to death. What are we going to do without this technology? We can complain about it all day long, but we've already swallowed it. So this is another thing the house does. It gives us a place to have this technology. If you're if you're living out of your rucksack, how much technology can carry around? Maybe your smartphone nowadays, and that can be a handy tool. But, I mean, <laughs> if you lose your smartphone, you've probably figured out enough tools that you can probably get by. In your house, you lose all that stuff, you're in trouble. You're that person on the street corner now, dirty and helpless and really broken that needs any kind of help they can get. Also, the illusion of ownership. It keeps you controlled and making money. You don't own that house. Um, they tell you, you know, like, work really hard and you can own this big house on this beautiful piece of property. But, but by the way, you got to pay your taxes. And you better keep working to pay those taxes because even though we said it's yours, if you don't jump through the right hoops and keep feeding Uncle Sam, it's getting taken away. And even if you do keep paying the taxes, what if the government decides they want a road there? You know? Evicted. Yeah. If you're lucky, maybe they'll reimburse you and maybe it'll be a nice chunk of money, but God help you if you've got any kind of sacred connection to that land. Maybe land isn't interchangeable for you. Maybe you just don't want to run down the road and build another house. Maybe that tree is where your kids were would play under. You know those branches. You saw your kid fall from that one branch and like learn something really important about life. That oak can't be replaced. The government doesn't see things in those terms, and they won't let you see things in those terms any more than they let the indigenous people see things in those terms. So the house also represents an illusion of ownership, which keeps you, like I said, making money and keeps you controlled. Nobody's going to really rebel that cares about that house. Um, And then just getting to the nuts and bolts. I know like I'm talking a lot about the cost of a house, but to me, this is a very important part of it. Look at the resources, the building materials. You know, where did these building materials come from that you made your house? Some of this deforestation that's happening. How the hell do you make siding? I don't know what that's made out of, but I got a feeling it's not good. Mm -hmm. Uh, The tar shingles, you know, all these things that you buy from Home Depot and don't give a lot of thought to that goes into making your house. The copper wires where the electricity's running through, the pipes um, that's bringing the plumbing, all of it. These are things that are coming out of factories that are being ripped from the earth, that are resources that are going into this house. And any kind of shelter is going to take some resources. But think about how many go into the average house. It's a hell of a lot more than a little like log house or long house or a teepee or anything like that. It's a big resource bulky thing. Think about the lawn. Um, Maybe you don't spray chemicals on your lawn. Maybe even let it grow a little thick now and then. But think about the biodiversity loss. That used to be forest. That forest was not just an accidental random thing. It suited the animals and creatures that lived there perfectly. It was their food. It was their things they needed to live there. And now you've turned it into a lawn. And however many flowers you plant to attract butterflies, however many birdhouses you build, it is not the same as what nature offered. Because those birds and those butterflies didn't need you before we all started building houses and having lawns and screwing with them. Think about the plumbing and the soiled water. 
You know, we're, we're talking about how water quality's in peril and we're shitting in it because of this new invention we got sold, modern plumbing. <laughs> it's such a good thing. Just crap in the water and push the handle and whoo, away it goes in the magic world. Even if it's a, uh, a water-saving toilet, still using water. Yeah. Still using pipes. And often they're using as much because you have to flush multiple times. <laughs> I bet in these houses, like, you know, instead of one big whoosh, you're like, I got to flush two or three times. And I don't know what that says about what I'm eating, but anyway, it happens. So, and then think about the power, the electricity. We all know about, like, the grid and the coal and the, the things that go into nuclear. the nuclear stuff. But even the green energy. I have people say, oh, I have solar panels. How the hell do you make a solar panel? Are you going out there and whittling one? Are you going out there and, like, asking the, the native spirits for one? It's coming out of a factory. It's still making pollution. And that damn thing is not going to last forever. It's going to break, and you're going to have to buy another one. It's just another clever way that the government has taken advantage of your concerns and just pacified you once again and brought you back into the consumer fold. Oh, we've got you covered. Don't buy that thing. That's ugly. We agree. We're with you. Buy this thing. This is green. You know the, tri- the the color of leaves on trees? Yeah. Green energy. So <laughs> think about the fact that we spent so much of human existence not needing power, not needing electricity. Why do we suddenly need it, green or otherwise? Why are we making compromises if the world's in the trouble that Greta Thunberg is telling us it is? You know, it doesn't seem like a good time to like, eh, maybe I'll do a little bit better. Think about the heat. How much it takes to heat this big house? Do you really need to live in a house this size? Is there any way to go outside sometimes to maybe build a little fire to, I don't know, just do something else? Do you need all this space to move around and inside your house? A tiny home, you know, it might be an improvement, especially when it comes to heat and climate control. But again, the materials used to make this tiny home, I feel like all the other stuff kind of still stands is a good question. Problems with chemicals? How many, how much treated wood is around? You're breathing this stuff. Your kids are breathing this stuff. You got your kids playing on these like floors with treated lumber. You got like paint. Furniture off-gassing. Furniture off-gassing. You've got plastic toys. Um, The list goes on and on. You got, maybe mold comes up. We had mold in our trailer. You know, really bad for you. That's something that is unique to having a dwelling, a house. Yeah, and it doesn't just affect poor people or dilapidated structures. There are brand new houses that can have mold problems as well. Security. Now you got all this crap, all this technology that's making you helpless. Now you got to protect it because there's people out there that don't have it or people out there that might have it, but know that they can turn yours into money. And don't we all want money? So now you got to spend more money to protect this crap. And you got to worry about that. Like your kids are in there. Maybe somebody breaks in because of all the the stuff, because you're such a successful person that you've gotten there, and maybe they hurt your kids while they're in there. So you've got these these fears weighing on you. You got to protect people. Class and, discrepancy. Yeah, and you got the chores. Now you got to clean it. And well, let's face it. I used to be a house cleaner. If you're successful enough to have one of these bigger houses. You're not cleaning your own house because yeah. you're too helpless to do that as well. Yeah. You're paying somebody else to clean your house because you do the important things. Maybe they mow your lawn for you. Um, either way, whether you're doing it yourself, it's hours off your precious life maintaining this house that they told you to have. They told you you want and they told you you need. Or Hours off your precious life at your job to make more money to pay somebody else to do it, Mm -hmm. which to me is even worse. 
I mean, it, you're, it's less of a relationship with your own home. Why would you not want to have a relationship with your own home? Anyway, so <laughs> I hope I've, I've covered a little bit about the real cost of a house. So, uh, Teresa. Well, I guess I'll introduce the next bullet here that you have listed. Um, and this is, again, in the houseless uh, kind of section. Why do pilgrims often relinquish having a home, having a structure? Gumby? Yeah, so this is something else I got to thinking about, is how often we see this repeated from Buddha, who left the palace, pretty much lived as a homeless person, except during the rainy season when they had like the simplest quarters. You got St. Francis, and before him, of course, Jesus. Whoever heard about Jesus's house? I mean, it seems like there's a reason why he was living the way he did. Over and over, you got like people just peace pilgrim, people relinquishing their home. I got wondering, why is that a thing? Is that just a weird coincidence? Is that accidental? Why is relinquishing the home so much of a thing? And one of the things that had occurred to me is why would you become a pilgrim? Why would you become a spiritual seeker to meet God? Whatever that means to you, the sacred, the deeper thing, the great mystery, that thing that is beyond this petty materialistic crap that is getting paraded in front of you every day. You want, you want to just wipe that off the table. Get it the hell out of the way because you know there's something special right behind it and you can't see it. So what do those walls and that roof represent? They're shutting God out. You want to let God in. If it rains on you, is that not God? What kind of understanding of God excludes the rain? If the sun shines on you, is that not God? Might not God send you a bird as a message like so many indigenous people believe that there was significance if a crow flew over, if two versus three crows flew over? What direction were they going? How are you going to even see it when you're sheltered in your house? You're keeping everything in or out that is God. And that is what a pilgrim, I feel like, is rejecting. Um, there's so many magical things that happen when you make yourself vulnerable, when you stop shutting things out. So to me, these seekers universally are heading out and they reject the house. These are empowered people walking the houseless path, again, choosing it, getting rid of this house because they, in their short lives, want to touch something beautiful, something sacred, something meaningful. And they've realized that these walls that we've been taught protect us also imprison us. They keep everything out that is meaningful in life. What do you do when you're in a house? You sit there and either you distract yourself with some bullcrap, you know, maybe you read the classics, so it's not bullcrap. Or, you know, you're getting online, you're, you're distracted with something. And then you start thinking about how to get out of your house. You know, Seinfeld does a bit about this, like people sitting around like, oh, what do you want to do? I want to go out. Oh, we got to go out. Let's go out. And that's pretty much like what we do. You know, let's just get out of the house. So why not get rid of the house? Why not Why not take a, a, a lesson from these pilgrims and let it all in? It doesn't mean you just like sit there in the rain and freeze to death. It means that you're close enough to the rain that it touches you. You hear it on your roof. You have just enough because the world is beautiful to you. You are part of that world. God didn't make a fucking mistake. You're here for a reason. 
and all these things are helping you stay alive and you want to be close to them because they're beautiful and they're a part of you. That's, to me, what the pilgrim is after. I remember we were watching this documentary we mentioned earlier, the um, On the Streets documentary. And I'll try to post a link to it on the Facebook page. But there was this one guy, and he was an artist, and he decided that as kind of an experiment in his life, he would live on the streets, and he decided he would live in a van living on the streets for five years, a period of five years. This was quite an experiment. And when he was talking to this reporter for the LA Times and the documentary, they seemed to know each other from back before he was living in his van. And he, he's like, everything has changed the way I look at things. And just then this woman had her window open in the apartment, like two or three stories up from the street level. And she started playing the violin. And he was like, see, this is what you miss if you're not out here. Like just all of these random moments that they can't be reproduced just by, you know, being in your house watching a TV show. This is something that is magical to be out here and experiencing. And for him, it was Venice, California. Like that's where he said he'd rather live in his van in Venice than being in a mansion with a balcony anywhere else in the world. But I would imagine, you know, it's not just Venice for everybody. Like we all have our own Venice. And Gumby and I have done, well, he's done more than I have, but kind of our own experiment doing these houseless retreats. And um, Gumby had read about this from Bernie Glassman. Bernie calls them street retreats. And just going out, and it's, it isn't saying that, oh, yeah, we've been homeless living on the streets. But it starts to reframe how you think about being homeless or houseless. Gumby, do you want to talk more about that? Well, yeah, I read in a book, and I can't remember which one, but by Bernie Glassman about his street retreats. And they were in New York City, and he's a Zen teacher, and he would take his people. They'd have to do, like, these things where they earn certain beads. Like, they they couldn't pay for them. So it was like you have to get somebody else to pay for one bead and just different acts of selflessness, of, like, dealing with your own ego to put together this string of beads. And the beads are what you would trade for the right to go on the street retreat. Um, and Bernie said it was sort of a acknowledgement of what the old time monks were after. You know, they didn't just go to some fancy white privilege mountain retreat and meditate for a week. They would hit the streets, you know, that's how they would really test themselves. And Bernie was like, I feel like we're missing something. Like they were on to something. How do I get more of that? And so that started the street retreats and they'd go out for a week and they would stick to their meditation schedule, but um, he would, like, give them, or he would tell them to bring a dollar. It was either a dollar or five dollars, but it was some small amount of money as an emergency. And after a few years of doing that, you know, he would see that, like, over and over that you could just ask for things on the street. Like, he was addicted to coffee, and so he found out what Teresa found out in our houseless retreats. <laughs> he could just go in a lot of times and ask for coffee, and they'd give him coffee. And... It was an, a, a chance to work on his own ego. Of course, he felt the shame at first of like being a beggar and the way people look at you. But then he would, being a Zen master, you know, explore that and like, well, let me look at that. Is there validity in that? Why do I feel ashamed? Can I let that go? Isn't that my ego? And isn't that what I'm trying to work on, my own self-importance? Um, 
And then he realized after a few years that people didn't need that dollar. He'd see people just kind of at the end kind of like, oh, I'm going to treat myself and buy some tea. And he's like, I almost feel like I'm kind of cheating them out of the rest of this lesson. <laughs> so, you know, he'd just tell them like, oh, no, no money. And he'd have some safety things in place. Like if you got to use the bathroom or whatever, have a partner, you know, things like that. So it wasn't just completely like, woo, let's just go out there. But that inspired me. So I started doing my own, uh, I called them houseless retreats to separate them from Bernie's street retreats locally around North Carolina. And I'd work up to a week and I'd bring like two things in my pocket, uh, usually a harmonica and a Leatherman wave. What? Neither of which were money. Yeah, I can't bring money. <clears throat> so yeah, the street retreats are a way that I started exploring this idea of how do I turn this homeless idea into a, an empowering houseless idea? And again, I'm not trying to say I understand homelessness because I've done this because it's a very different experience when you're out there and you're struggling with whatever you're struggling with. And there's no like, oh, in the end of the week, you know, <laughs> it's not about that. It's not about some kind of phony, like what they call it, poverty tourism. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. It's not poverty tourism. Um, it's more for me, like my survival overnights. It's practicing a survival skill. How do I survive on the streets when the things come up, you know, in my own body, in my own mind? How do I address them? I want to understand this better. Working on attitude. Yeah, definitely working on attitude. As usual, anything survival-oriented, that's the biggest, most important part. Um, what's something you'd say you learned from the houseless retreats? Well, Gumby had mentioned before we went out on the houseless retreat that there's going to be a lot of time. Like That's even in the survival overnights that you've done. That's kind of been one of the biggest humps to get over is just what do you do with all this time? And I feel like that was a challenge for, for me anyway, when we were out for how long was it? Six nights or so. Mm -hmm. Something like that. But in a way, I mean, how Gumby calls it a retreat. It really is. I mean, you can make it whatever you want. If you want to just lay in the sunshine in a park all day and watch the leaves fall and, you know, in the autumn, Great. Good on you. If you want to work on a project or find a free class that they're offering somewhere, hey, go for it. Maybe you'll make a connection and, you know, they'll be able to help you on your way with something else. And even going to the soup kitchens and food pantries, while it's not the greatest scene for me, I still felt a very welcome. I felt like a sense of community, just the people in line kind of telling you how things work. And it was really it really renewed my like my sense of being a human being with others. I don't know if that makes sense, but I'm talking too fast. So anyway, <laughs> I really liked those aspects of the retreat. And Gumby was mentioning about the money, how um, the people that were on Bernie Glassman's street retreats, they would just kind of have this money left over. We actually... Gumby panhandled a little bit to see if he could get enough money to buy a coffee. But because we were getting coffees for free, we just ended up with about $7 and some change. And at the end of the week, it was his birthday. So we didn't really have any reason to spend the money, but just a treat. He bought like a few 25 cent records because we had a record player at the time. But there, there weren't any needs. There wasn't anything that we were like, oh my God, I'm going to die if I don't have this. Even beer and wine were on the list of things that we got for free. You remember that? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, another 
theme, I'm thinking about the pilgrims and everything um, that I that I see in a like a lot of these people that help the homeless is they don't help from the top. They help from the bottom. Um, that's something else I wanted to explore. I believe any true solution, you know, I talked about earlier how the solution we're taught for the homeless, it doesn't make any sense. It do, it's not working. It hasn't worked. It doesn't work. It just kind of enables things to keep going. The real issue is that this class discrepancy, that so many of us are willing to suck it up and like live with too much right next to people who have too little and then to support a program to assuage our own guilt that we know doesn't fix the problem. So I wanted to start considering like, what if I start working on a way to empower like being out there on the streets and not having stuff at the expense of the other guy? Because I can gain too much and I can be generous and share it a little bit with the other guy. But to me, the real solution is going to be not getting more than the other guy in the first place. Mm. You know, a sense of sharing. Like to me, that's that's what you have in tribe. You don't have the rich person in the teepee that like consistently hoards stuff and has too much stuff and just generously gives people, you know, a little bit. You have like very generous people that all live at pretty much the same level. And if you happen to be, it's your day to have like the good hunt, it immediately goes to everybody else. You're not hoarding it. So that was part of what the houseless retreat represented to me. Um, and I just wanted to say that there, there is some more information on our website about the houseless retreats. If you want to read about it and see some pictures. Yeah. And you know, all the different ways houseless can look, you know, homeless, um, you know, we were talking about just kind of being on the streets and that, that feeling of desperation and trying to get back. But I want to look now at the different faces of like the empowered houseless person. I think of hitchhikers. That's one way people that just throw their thumb out and they travel anywhere they want to go. Um, there's a lot of hitchhikers who aren't out there just because they have to be, they want to be hitchhikers. Um, there was even like, uh, one or two of the kids in Streetwise that was saying, like, yeah, I love hitchhiking. Mm-hmm. Train hoppers. Wow, what a long, proud tradition that is. Um, you know, the people that know how to ride the rails. I've never done it. I've always been scared of that. I've heard it's dangerous, but, you know, many things seem dangerous that you haven't done. You got people living in cars like us. You got the van life people now, but people living in all kinds of vehicles. You got the RVs. Um, plenty of people have found some way to have the, the, found their way into a big RV and they have no permanent residence. They just travel around. Um, a lot of these people have money, you know, you got the retirees, but you also got just kind of like your old hippies, you know, that I don't know how they're making enough money to keep it going, but they make it work for them. <laughs> you got mountain men. They go out there and you might say like, well, they got a log cabin and everything, but yeah, I'm not saying, um, to not have any kind of, of home. Shelter. Um, yeah, because one of the reasons why I called it a houseless retreat instead of a homeless retreat is homelessness is a state of mind. So I'm talking about people that have gotten rid of that, uh, I need a house to have a home. So the mountain man out there by himself in the mountains, his log cabin is his home. He doesn't need all the plumbing, all the other things that go with it. Beach bums, making the beach work for him, uh, hustling the beach, foraging the beach, um, man, that's something I've always wanted to try for a while. I've, 
it just seems like such a romantic existence. Although, <laughs> I don't know, they got sand fleas and all that stuff too. Hermits, people that, you know, just don't want the company of other people. Often these are people on spiritual paths. And pilgrim, pilgrims in general, um, who often travel, they are take great pride in how little they need because God takes care of them. And indeed, God usually does take care of them. You got hikers, the backpackers, you know. Even though it's a short-term thing for a lot of backpackers, maybe they're signing up for nine months of the Appalachian Trail and they know what house they're going to after that. For those nine months, they're technically houseless, um, not homeless because the Appalachian Trail because becomes their home. We've met some backpackers that have given up their house. They hit the Appalachian Trail mm -hmm. and they don't know where they're going after that. They got rid of everything. So they've just decided that's their life for now and let's figure out after that. You got your street rats, you know, just the people that kind of you see out on the, the streets panhandling with the cardboard signs. Some of them are playing instruments, busking. Um, some of them are criminals, you know, they, they break into cars and steal uh, stereos. Um, and, you know, in a culture, we like to really look down on these people that break the law, but in a culture that keeps supporting class hierarchy, where I can have too much and the next guy can have too little, I'd be upset if somebody broke into the van and stole my stuff. But at the same time, it's one of those things that there's like a bigger picture happening. Mm -hmm. You know, like, are they really the criminals or mm -hmm. are we the criminals? Yeah. Have we not already stolen it um, just because we went through the approved hoops of the approved criminal of our culture? <laughs> um, you got the squatters just by going in there and abandoned houses. You know, a lot of these are, are freegans, people who, for moral reasons, have rejected money. They've decided... I'm not going to spend a dime. I'm not going to try to use money. I'm not going to be around money. Like, I am a freegan. And because uh, every time I spend money, it feeds something that I find deplorable. A lot of those those freegans end up being squatters. And bicyclists. You know, that's a great way to travel around. A bike takes very little money to maintain. Um, you can learn how to work on it. And it's a lot faster than walking. And it's slow enough that you still get to smell the roses as you go by. So I think, you know, traveling by bike is a excellent way to do it. So there's many other ways, but I just want to kind of give you an idea that like when I say houseless, it doesn't have to look like what we're doing. There's so many ways to do it, to reject the cost, this, this house that is actually such a heavy burden. And when I say that, I'm not ignoring the benefits of a house. It's just with those benefits, I think too often we ignore the cost. Yeah, and I was I was just thinking, I mean, I know we've probably said this in many different ways throughout the podcast, but homeless to me just seems like a lack. And houseless just sounds like a freedom. Like, I don't have to worry about that thing. Uh, so along with different ways that being houseless can look, there are different terms for some of the people that are moving about, whether it's a hobo um, which kind of denotes maybe someone that's looking for work or has found work that's seasonal. So a migrant worker might be an example. Um, a tramp, whether they're a leather tramp. Is leather tramp the, like, if you're a hitchhiker? Yeah, think about it. Right. So, like, uh, the leather on your shoes or whatever, if you happen to wear shoes. And then rubber tramp is what we're doing now because yeah. we've got rubber we tires. Rubber we rubber tramps. And then you got your straight-up bum, which is um, probably well, what we were doing. a tramp generally isn't looking for work. So I don't know. I think I'm kind of like half hobo now that I'm working one day a week. 
So, You're a rubber hobo. <laughs> shut your mouth. So, yeah, so a tramp technically is traveling. Like a hobo travels for work, a tramp travels and isn't looking for work. Hmm. What about a bum? A bum doesn't travel and doesn't work. Nice. I like that, too. And, yeah, we're getting to the end of this podcast, so I want to also bring up Daniel Quinn. Um, he talks about homelessness in a very interesting way. Um both in my Ishmael a little bit and also in Beyond Civilization. Um, Here's a quote from Beyond Civilization. Exceeding to homelessness, actually allowing the poor to make a living on the streets would open the prison gates of our culture. The disenfranchised and disaffected would pour out. It would be the first great movement of people to that social and economic no-man's land I call Beyond Civilization. The tribe of Crow, no longer suppressed, would grow. Perhaps explosively. We wouldn't want that to happen, would we? Heavens to Betsy, no. It would be chaotic. It might even be exciting. <laughs> so to me, Daniel Quinn is kind of capturing what houselessness is about. Um, I love that idea that this way of life, that more and more of us are starting to reject it. And the first thing that a lot of us are starting to look at and think, eh, maybe I don't need that is that house, you know, that tribe of crow. He talks about the food being under lock and key and how they make us work for it. And the tribe of Crow finds the cracks in the storage bin, the dumpster divers, the scavengers, ways to not make that quite as true for them. Um, That's definitely been an experience that we've uh, (laughs) gotten to explore. Um, I also like the way he says heavens to Betsy because I've only heard my mom say that. (laughs) So I didn't even know that was a term anybody else like ever used. Mm. But uh yeah, you got anything you want to add to what Daniel Quinn says about homelessness? Um, no, although um, you were talking about this in a different context of how, you know, sometimes there are people that are really um, groundbreaking thinkers and the way that they're posing things is different, but yet Daniel Quinn lived in a house and for all we know had all the comforts of all of that. Yeah, I recently saw Derek Jensen has taken some heat at the moment because apparently he got interviewed by a white nationalist group that he claims he didn't know they were white nationalists. And uh, it turns out they are. And Derek Jensen, like I've read his books, I, you know, he's not a white nationalist. And apparently the, the trans movement, like there's some transgender people who have like really are up in arms with him. And I don't know all the details of these things, but what it got me thinking about is I don't need the people that I learn from to be perfect. And one of the things I thought about was Daniel Quinn. You know, Daniel Quinn was one of the first people to really get me questioning our culture in the way I now question it so much that it's I don't even have to think about it anymore. It's the it's the world I live in at this moment, you know, mother culture. Um, But look at Daniel Quinn. He said he's not an outdoors guy. He lived in a house, you know. He he lived in a house that uh, had electricity and all the comforts yeah. of, of the modern lifestyle. He lived this lifestyle that is murdering the world. And he himself, as I just read, said, you know, the first people that are disaffected and disenfranchised might be the homeless, the tribe of crow that come pouring out of the prison gates of our society. Why is Daniel Quinn not disenfranchised and disaffected? So to me, that points out to maybe 
the imperfection of the man. He's not a guru. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I felt like that was a very important part of that whole consideration is that I'm not looking for a guru. Like that takes nothing away from Daniel Quinn for me. All his ideas are still provocative. They still inspire me. And, uh, you know, I don't need to feel like, how come Daniel Quinn wasn't living out of a right. van? Right. It's not it has inspired hippie. me in part to live out of a van. Exactly. So I'm thankful to him for that. So I really, I don't know, I find that whole thing ridiculous when people start like, oh, you know, when Derek Jensen's looking for an electric blanket, though, we did talk a lot of shit about that. <laughs> oh, poor Derek Jensen. <laughs> but again, Derek Jensen, he's another one. He's inspired the hell out of me, and I just give him full credit for that. And I just want to give one more plug to that documentary that was done by the L.A. Times. I do not work for the L.A. Times. I've never even been to L.A. We were going to go and then just decided not to because it was too expensive and too hot. But it was called On the Streets. And I, when I typed into Google, like, documentaries on homelessness or documentaries about, you know, street people, I read through the descriptions and there are so many documentaries and movies about people that are just you know, down on their luck or, you know, they had a hard life. And that is part of it. We're not denying that. But I really liked this documentary on the streets because I would say the majority, definitely the majority, probably, you know, three quarters or so of the people they talked to, whatever their background, their situation was, man, they were making the best of it. Like the one guy, he was like, this is my home. And he just put his arms out as far as he could reach Like, all of this is my home. I'm not homeless. And, you know, there were families that had been all kicked out, like when their parent died and they lost the house. And they had made their own new community, their own new home in a park. Um, So, yeah, so I really liked that documentary. And, again, I'll try to post a link to it on our website and on our Facebook page. Yeah, and that documentary um, is such a good... uh, it's a good houseless documentary as yeah. opposed to the other one that was a good homeless documentary. And, uh, yeah, the slab, you know, these oh, people, slab City, yeah. yeah, slab city, you know, there was a lot of empowered homeless people that weren't down on their luck. They had chosen it. They were very happy about their lives. So intentional about it, intentionally houseless. Yeah. So, okay. To wrap up this podcast, um, let's see our message from a listener. We've got Joe from Dublin, Ireland. Dublin. And he wrote, I'll get to listen to this later in reference to Foraging, Hobo's Garden of Eaton Part 2. I really enjoyed listening to Part 1. Foraging has interested me for a good while now. Have you ever heard of wild tending? It's kind of like permaculture and guerrilla gardening mixed together. I've never heard of wild tending. I don't know if that's something that's uh, like a term used more in Ireland. I have, of course, heard of permaculture. That's something Teresa actually got more into than me. um, I saw that I've always been like more into foraging and guerrilla gardening is something I want to learn more about because I'm realizing the value of maybe planting a few vegetables, but I don't like the idea of like planting them in a way that uh, supports this idea of private property. So the idea of like slipping them into a park, you know, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm in a park right now. We're sitting in a van and I'm seeing wisteria vines and, you know, all kinds of exotic invasives. So it's not like I am going into this virgin old growth forest and planting my crops that might escape. <laughs> so, yeah, the idea of like planting a few potatoes or I've heard potatoes are one of the easiest things. But, yeah, something like that sounds interesting. Well, who was that guy? Fukuoku. What was he? Oh, damn. If you hadn't asked Masa... Matsumoto Fukuoku, something like that. Japanese guy. Yeah, he was known for uh, 
Ah, what's it? One Seed Revolution is one of the books he read. The first uh, wrote he the first one. He's got a word for straw, his. One straw revolution. No, that was the name of the book. But his type of agriculture. But it, it's it's considered like a. His idea was nature was the best at growing vegetables. So why not do as little as possible? Why not let nature do what nature knows how to do best? Nature is the master at producing food. So he's got some really interesting philosophies and approaches. Um, I'd really encourage you, if you're interested in this stuff, if you haven't checked it out already, maybe give him a look. Um, I think this would kind of feed in with everything else. But, yeah, I really appreciate the comment. And um, anything else you want to add to that, Teresa? Um, I just think it's really cool that people are following our podcast and listening to both parts of episodes and commenting. I think that's really nice. And, Joe, I hope you got around to listening to part two of the Forage in Hobo's Garden of Eaton. Let us know what you thought. So if you have any questions or comments, um, please let us know. You can contact us through our website, www.escapingsociety.weebly, B as in bitch, please, dot com. Um, and please give us a review. We love these reviews. Um, you know, whatever you thought about it, if you don't want to comment, there's that little thing where you listen to a podcast and you can just kind of like tap a little star or something. I'm not sure how it works. Maybe it's different for every carrier. Mm-hmm. But yeah, let us know, you know, how we're doing. But I guess that's it for us. So maybe I guess you'll hopefully hear from us next week. Thanks. Bye. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it, cause we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no address.